Welcome to the first incision of CMF podcast where we explore issues at the interface of faith and medicine. I'm your host, Dr. John Greenall. Now on Saturday the 25th of April 2020, CMF hosted a national online gathering with a thousand people registered. And in our keynote talk, Dr. Patrick Dixon, author, business consultant, futurist and chairman of Global Change Limited, looked at the topic, life beyond COVID-19. Patrick speaks and then fields questions from conference participants, and he speaks powerfully into the context that we see ourselves in. Over to Patrick. So firstly, I want to say how, how moved and excited I am that we have right now 665 people on this call together, all of whom are almost all of whom are care workers, many of you on the front line, are changing lives, being a prophetic demonstration of the love and compassion of Christ. And, and uh, you know what, uh, we were praying together as a team just yesterday, and I found myself moved to tears. I, I couldn't even get my words out. There were tears storming, streaming down my face. Here I am, self-isolated in one part of the UK, but there I was connecting with brothers and sisters in Christ who have planned and, 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 and prayed over the idea of a gathering, the annual gathering of about 250 people, and then devastated when it couldn't happen. And now finding that three times that already more or less nearly are on this call. And we know that by the time it's streamed on various platforms across the world, there may be six or 7,000 people that will participate in the ministry that's been today. So I just want to thank the organizers for having the faith and the confidence and the courage to go forward with this event. And I believe this is a new day, uh, not just for the CMF. I believe it's a new day for the inter international movement that CMF has spawned as we've seen. And just look at that, what that video we, we heard, it's just amazing. Um, so I want to welcome you from whatever country you are, whatever you've been doing today, uh, you may be sick from COVID yourself as a result of looking after patients, whatever your situation, there is life beyond COVID-19. So let's, I want to look firstly at actually what's happening from a different perspective than you get in the media. And then I want to share with you some pastoral and hopefully encouraging perspectives on that. So. If the technology worked, I'm going to try and share my screen to you and let's see if I can. Um, and uh, I'm going to try and share this slide, which I hope you, you can now see. Okay, so uh, I want you to wave at me if you can see something. <laughs> Hopefully you can. <laughs> All right. So here we have the virus itself. And you know, most people don't, in, in, most people you're caring for have no idea what a virus is. They don't understand you can't kill a virus because it's just a nanotech robot. Someone posed a question just before this session started. They say, you know, where did this intelligent design come from? It's just a scrap of RNA. It's the tiny fragment of your total language of life in its equivalence. Um, in a bag of protein with some funny knobs on the outside that allow it to attach to specific cells. But what's really horrible about this particular virus and you know, is that it, it, turns, it turns the people that you love the most into bioweapons factories so that they become walking generators of medical problems for those that they know the most, that they care about the most, that they live with, that they work with. This is a terrible, problem for humanity. And the trouble is, I mean, I've, I've been warning about virus pandemics like coronavirus for a very long time because of my work with HIV. It's just another mutant virus. It hopped from animals into humans and has killed already 45 million people. So there's nothing new about this. I, I warned about it in, in a book I wrote called FutureWise in 1998, again in, in, in 2015 in another book. Every year we see new viruses emerge. Most of them are so lethal that they, they, uh, they, they, uh, they are destroyed uh, because they kill people more quickly than they can reproduce. Um, 
And, but if you look at just this chart here, I'm not going to bother to go through it, but you see mortality rates that some of them really very high, bird flu 60% in 2003, much higher than SARS was. Um, MERS, 34%, COVID, 1%, 2% don't really know yet. But the point is that these viruses spread quickly. They can spread quickly. Swine flu in 2009 infected half the world's children in just 24 months. Now, all I can say is, thank God this doesn't target children because SARS did. Many of these other viruses do. They target equally the very old and the very young. I cannot imagine the reaction today if we were finding that for every person with thick medical records dying at the, of, of COVID-19 at the age of, of 83, that was another one or two or three children, babies under the age of three, four, five. Thank God that's not happening. This is, a, this is a wake up call for humanity. But the trouble is this, there are already 30 strains of this prevalent in Italy and Spain are um, some of them producing up to 270 times more virus in people's bodies than uh, some of the most mild strains we're finding in the US. How long will immunity last anyway? That's always been a challenge with coronaviruses. And we don't know the answer to that question. We don't know whether uh, for instance, if you catch one of these strains, that one of the other strains might hit you again four months later. We don't know whether immunity to one of the strains would even protect you against that same strain attacking you in another year's time. We just don't know. It's a problem for designer vaccines. I'm going to come to how we find our way through this in a moment, but be in no doubt, uh, I'm supposed to be a futurist, let me tell you the future. Our world is about to declare global war. This is the third world war, if you like. I don't, I, I'm not talking metaphorically, I'm talking literally. I'm talking about wartime mobilization of entire societies. And in case you haven't noticed, it is already happening. It's just that the language of war has not yet caught us. What do we do in wartime? It means that we declare that is an enemy and the common enemy unites us, which is why you don't see debates about Brexit at the moment. There's a common enemy at which is the threat to the our entire world. And we will fight our enemy on every front. This is the language you will hear. We will mobilize our entire nation, every nation, just like we would in wartime, which means not just into healthcare, it means mobilizing into harvesting food. It means mobilizing into factories and other things. Um, it, means, uh, it means total, total mobilization. It means everything is sub subsumed into the effort to keep our people safe, working, fed, watered with lights on and the rest until this enemy is defeated. It means that we, we commit our entire nation to protect the most vulnerable from the, these bombs raining down, these biotech bombs. It means we protect the, the casualties. We look after them well, which is why at the moment we're all in lockdown. Um, it means that we maintain morale, we look to, to, to maintain community life, and it means that we declare that we need to be confident in victory. Um, and uh, and of course, nations have had all kinds of strategies for doing this, uh, suspect, you know, tracking cases, contact tracing, isolation, distancing, lockdown, masks, and all that kind of stuff, you know all of this. Um, and we will move towards a phase, which is the post-COVID phase, um, of releasing people with a passport, hoping that uh, the fact that they've not been infected, or rather, that they need to be separated from people who are not being infected, as a different group with a different strategy. People who have been infected, that we think have got immunity, that could go back to work, that are safe on the wards and so on. But the challenge is this, where do we find a strategy which is different from just global immunity developing, especially 
when 85% of humanity does not live in the UK, it does not live in France or Germany or Italy or the US. You see, the future of COVID-19 is dominated by emerging markets because 85% of all living human beings live in emerging markets today. And so we need to understand what happens in countries like Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Zimbabwe. You know, um, my wife and I have driven through the bush 50 to 60 miles through um, um, passing people carried on donkeys to a clinic. And when we arrived, there was nothing there except medicines for people who have schizophrenia and epilepsy. So what on earth is someone like a country like Zimbabwe going to do about lockdown or quarantine? You know, what's the point of locking down the population if you don't have the resources uh, to deal with the situation when people become sick? I, I'm just asking us to think. I'm just saying, let us pause for breath. We can be obsessed with the UK situation, but our hearts and our prayers need to be really with our brothers and sisters in the poorest parts of the world who are experiencing something very different, where they can lock down if they like, but you've still got mega cities, mega slums, you've got people who are subsistence farmers. We need a different kind of solution. Uh, and in these countries, you can expect the virus to, uh, to, to, to spread relatively rapidly. And with a doubling time, we've seen doubling of infections in London every two days at the worst before lockdown. Uh, before that, in most parts of the world, before lockdown, we were seeing doubling of cases every four days, five days, six. Well, with that, you go from one case to a thousand in 10 doublings. You go from a thousand to a million in 10 doublings. You go from a million to a billion in 10 doublings. I tell you this, you go through the whole of Africa in no time at all. So let's be clear that the African populations, for example, are much younger than ours. Um, the number of people who are elderly with really thick medical records, relatively few, most of them will die relatively young. So what that means is for a country like Uganda, they are likely to see a really big, savage spread of this virus, but it will go right through the country really relatively quickly, just like some of the other viruses have done in the past. And they will then have 60 to 70 or 80% immune. Meanwhile, the UK will still be intermittently in lockdown, perhaps till 2021 or beyond. We just don't know. It depends on other things. You see, we have to think about alternatives to vaccines. Vaccines may or may not work, we don't know. I hope and pray that they do, but even if invented tomorrow, they will take a long time. And vaccines do not protect us against the next wave of some new virus. Every year there's another one, every year another problem, and every decade we might go back to another crisis like this. We can't afford to lock down the whole world every 10 or 15 years because of some new mutant. We need a different way altogether. And this is the heart of the problem. In the 1940s, penicillin was invented, uh, rather discovered, of course, is discovered. And that led to a whole raft of antibiotics. But can you name me a single antiviral, 80 years later or more, that is as effective as against a single virus as penicillin was against some bacteria back in the 1940s? So you can see that time has almost stood still, almost zero um, success in developing antivirals simple medicines to take out of the cabinet to give one of your patients in the surgery if they get COVID. Oh, what a terrible situation. Nothing against flu, nothing against common cold, nothing against polio, nothing against smallpox. I mean, nothing against any common viral illness. Nothing really against HIV, terrible HIV drugs we have. I mean, what would your patients say if they came in with, uh, I don't know, bronchopneumonia caused by bacteria and you said, here's some antibiotics. I said, thank you. How long do I take them? Oh, for life. 
said, what? <laughs> That's not a good medicine. So the antivirals we have for HIV, I welcome them. I thank God for them. But they're basically a very poor substitute for what we actually need, which are drugs that, that fundamentally enable people to be cured from viruses and to do it quickly. And we need specific ones for COVID are doing things like blocking cell surface receptors, blocking gene translation, blocking virus manufacture, blocking viral release. And we will see those. We will. And that will be a much bigger answer in the longer term. And we'll turn viral illnesses like this to other things. No, uh, to something that's basically history. Now, talking of history, some have said to me, is this some biblical plague? In other words, is this some apocalyptic sign that the Lord is coming soon or something like that? I say, look, plagues are nothing new. This is actually quite mild. I'm looking out of my window here and I can see Weymouth Harbour. In Weymouth Harbour, in June 1348, the first cases of plague erupted from a single boat. 50% we now think of the population of the UK died. That's the latest research. Huge. So nothing new about plagues. We've seen biblical plagues. We've seen uh, plagues in many, many different parts of the world at different times. But I want to come on to the one of the challenges with uh, lockdown and what the church is doing to respond to that because actually it's really encouraging and this conference is part of that you see St Paul um, when he was locked in prison he was isolated much as many of you are with two or three people but it took him quite a while to realize that actually although he couldn't do all of the things he wants to do in terms of ministering to churches that he did have the words which could be recorded by a, by a pen on paper. And he suddenly discovered that actually he could unleash the anointing of God that was on his life. And as he started to write, he became the world's first virtual disciple. He became the world's most influential Christian. Uh, the most influential Christians ever lived as a direct result of being forced into isolation where he couldn't communicate and being forced to communicate in unusual ways, not his normal ways. And this is happening to the church. It's happening in your church, it's happening all over the place, here even in CMF. So we had a conference of 250 people arranged. Now it looks like this message will get to six or five, 7,000 people over the next year or two. Extraordinary. In our own church, we have 100 people on a Sunday, and we, ha we have a congregation of 200, 300 people watching. We have no idea where they come from. We have letters coming in from all over the world, emails, texts, saying thank you for the ministry. And what is happening beyond this is that we are, we are finding whole communities, networks that are being um, uh, swept into this great communication of the good news of Jesus Christ. People fellowshipping with each other, sharing all kinds of things, who don't know the Lord, who don't have a faith. They're not even sure they're looking for one, but they've tumbled in on a bigger conversation. So something extraordinary is happening right in the middle of all of this suffering and pain. And out of this isolation, the church is being unleashed, the message of the church. And now for you, at those of you who are working in the wards, wherever you are, in the home, uh, in your own home, wherever you are. You know, Paul's own words to our, that we are the aroma of Christ and we witness to the hope that is within us, even when there are no words. It's something that actually is part of literally the air that we breathe. Um, in, uh, Peter describes how we talk about the hope that is within us. We're always ready to share this amazing hope. 
I can remember vividly in a London teaching hospital, I was going to see a woman who I knew had very advanced cancer. And she welcomed me graciously to her bedside. And uh, we sat and we talked. And I was interested to know what she would tell me about her understanding of her situation. And many of you are in this situation yourselves with people who are caught up with COVID-19. They're on the ward, facing an uncertain future, but in fact, the future is more certain to you. And you know that they are rapidly on their way through uh, the physicality of life into, uh, into a, 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 a longer destiny. And this woman, she smiled at me. She didn't speak much. And then she just, she just reached out and took my hand. And I was there in my uniform and, and she looked at me in the eyes and she said, now she said, you know where you're going, don't you? I was caught a little. She said, I can tell. No one else will talk to me about what is happening to me, but I know that I can talk to you. And she said, I know and the tears pouring down her face and there were tears pouring down mine too, because I knew that here was a woman of faith who just needed to know that there was someone who would hear her story and not walk away from her in her time of need. And you are the aroma of Christ. You may not realize it, I didn't. But she knew your patients know, they pick up things from you. The people around you know, the people you work with, they know. The, the cleaner who cleans the toilets for you, they know. They sense, they see something. Even if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they know there is something in you. This particular photograph was viral, went viral all the way around the world, long before COVID. And I'm sorry that today, that's that particular nurse would be covered in all kinds of apparatus that would make such intimacy more difficult. Paul talks about sharing with others the comfort that we ourselves have received from Christ. And some have said it's very difficult when you are experiencing doubts to know how to handle those things. Actually, it's in our periods of doubt sometimes that we find ourselves having the capacity, having come through that, to help others in their own place of questioning. We comfort us, we comfort others with the help that we are, with the comfort that we ourselves have received from Christ, not in the same situation, but we bring something of the knowledge that his presence is with us and that there is life beyond life. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Whatever happens to us, there is a, a, a place for us and there is a future. And, you know, I think about the extraordinary stories we've had of people who've literally more or less come back from the dead, even our own Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And I'm certain that we will find that in years to come, he will describe what a profound thing it was for him. Indeed, you saw it in the very moving video he gave, thanking by name so many doctors and nurses and cleaners and helpers and people who had helped him to live. And this is our gift. Our gift is to be in a place of pain. Our gift is to remain with people in their times of fear, uncertainty. Our gift is to be present around those who aren't sure of their own future as doctors and nurses scared for their own families and to see, for them to see that we are radiating 
something different. That despite our human fears, that we are radiating an inner peace. It's not that we've got it all together. It's not that we don't get upset or traumatized. But they can see that we actually are walking in a different place. Walking in a different place, as Paul says, with our eyes fixed. As far as we can. Not on what is seen but on what is unseen. Why? Because what is seen, COVID and all the stuff that it's causing will pass. But what is unseen is eternal. So I just want to encourage you, whoever you are, however you're feeling today, so that you know that the love of Jesus is on you. The power of the Holy Spirit is within you. That you carry the aroma of Christ. That you are made for this moment. That you're a man or woman of destiny that you may have the courage to walk in the path that Jesus has called you to. And you will be someone who is used so many times in different ways, more than you will ever understand. So many people touched, you know, they don't say anything. Sometimes you're privileged, you bump into them in the street, or years later, some, you hear a story or a card. But we touch people's lives. We go on regardless, not looking for that instant reward or things. But just knowing that we have been the hands of Jesus, because he has no hands to take except your hands. We have been the feet of Jesus. He has no feet except your feet. We have been the mouth of Jesus. He has no mouth except your mouth. Amen. So that's really all I wanted to share. And uh, I have no idea what's been going on. I need to come back into the, into the rest of this meeting and try to understand uh, what's happening. Um, okay, so... I've got a couple of questions here and Sheila has got my mobile phone because I need a lot of other stuff on that too. So I will be sending the Christian participants through here. Please could you confirm you've received this message. Uh, okay, so, okay, so, right. So I'm, I, I see that Sheila had so many WhatsApp messages coming through on my phone during this broadcast. We had to turn it off. That's the trouble with digital, isn't it? But I'm now turning my phone on and I'm now connecting back into Sledo. And this amazing thing, whoa, my word, here we are. <laughs> okay. So how many minutes we got? About 15. Right. So I'm going to uh, look and see what's been happening here. And I'm going to try and deal with as many of these as possible. That's okay, Felicia? Yeah, fine. absolutely fine. Great. Thank you, Patrick. Patrick, in fact, you've got till quarter two, three. So oh, you're, doing, you're doing oh. very well. And once the question's come in thick and fast, I'm sure there'll be even more. So do, you're doing yeah, well. We've already got six votes for this one. Will healthcare delivery in developing countries be much better or worse after COVID-19? Um, that's a very interesting question. What we've had to do is build a lot of spare capacity. It's unbelievable what's happened in London. <laughs> the UK, I mean, it's thanks to the army and, the, and a whole load of other uh, amazing people in the health service. You know, we've built a hospital for 4,000 people in, in 10 days. We know how to do logistics. We're not so good at but uh, we're not so good at sewing gowns, unfortunately, but we're pretty good at the other stuff. And you know, it's absolutely amazing. And I just want to congratulate people what they've done. What we've done is we've shown we can build capacity. Um, I think that we will be better um, at doing at healthcare generally, because I think we will have greater resilience. I think we'll be much more agile. And actually, um, I, th I, I hope too, that our nation will be just that much more appreciative of what it is to try and juggle so many different needs for people on the front line. And I've seen a compassion uh, and an enthusiasm. I mean, uh, Sheena and I were walking um, last night, it was last night, wasn't it? it was last night. And uh, the time swept away and we forgot that it was clap time. 
and suddenly, and it was, it was eight o'clock, and suddenly we're hearing these huge booms from the, all the ships in, around us and all the hoots and the cars. And you know, I thank God for that. That, that. that kind of thing is going to raise up a generation, I, I believe, of new superheroes into healthcare in the future. So um, where's the tipping point between deaths from COVID-19 in developing countries and deaths from collateral damage and lockdown? That's, yeah, okay. So, we need to use the language of war, okay? When you lose the, use the language of wartime, you get there. You, you can then predict the future, okay? So in wartime, what happens is, when the first set of bombs come down and missiles, you put everybody into shelters. And you say, right, everybody down. And uh, we need to sort out the wounded. We need to work out how on earth to try and intercept some of these missiles. But, uh, but of course, you can't do that forever because you run out of food, you run out of everything. The lights go off, everything. So as soon as you possibly can, you then take a deep breath and you say, look, we've now built some extra infrastructure for hospitals. We've got some extra emergencies for the next wave of missiles coming over. Um, but we can't stop. As we used to say that during the Second World War, the show must go on. And in fact, to give in is, is terrible. So actually, that's what we do. We, 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 uh, that is an act of courage. It's an act of courage. You go to work. It's an act of courage. Uh, you, you actually uh, do these particular things. We have to do that. Otherwise, our world will be destroyed. Our nation will be nothing. So, um, and, and actually, it means the other parts of the health service have to go on because actually it means otherwise people start dying of cancer, they start dying, more people dying of stroke. Uh, we, if you look at the number of deaths in Italy from, from COVID-19 in the most hard hit areas, we've seen double the death rate than you would have expected from COVID. You see the normal death rate, which we know what it was normally in an April, March, April, then you see the added deaths from COVID-19 that we can attribute to COVID-19. And then you see, for everyone, you see another great chunk more. And the reason some of those have died is because they, they died of other things that weren't treated properly in hospital. So the show must go on. The world continues to turn. We will be back to work. We'll be trying to do things however we can. But remember that slide, doing it in a way that protects the vulnerable, um, keeps up morale, enables normal life to be resumed as much as we possibly can. It's a fine line. So you'll be finding that um, you know, I mean, if everybody was stayed in lockdown forever, you find the government begin to you know, beg us to go out and say, look, look, we're ready, waiting for you. We need some more people to get COVID. We are here now. We finally managed to make the gowns. We've got everything ready. We have everything ready for you. Um, we need you to go back to work, not all at once. Just be careful, but we need you to start behaving more normally um, because otherwise the virus wins. The virus has the victory. It's destroyed us. And we are at war with this virus. So let's be clear that that's what's going to happen. And at the same time, of course, we're developing weapons against the virus, uh, which may be vaccine, it may be antivirals and so on. Uh, best ways to help our fellow healthcare workers. How is best to help our fellow healthcare workers fighting the coronavirus in emerging countries? I don't really know how to answer that question, except to say that ASSET, our AIDS foundation that we began in our own home 30, 31 years ago is, is working many of these nations. We just had a conference call with the international leaders from places like Uganda and India. Um, what can you do? Many of them are in lockdown or they're, or they're nearly burned out in hospitals. I think all you can do is pray. Um, I think there are major financial needs too, which are going to hit because, um, because of the, um, the drying up of, of the voluntary sector giving. Um, so this will be a time to dig deep within your own church to support um, those uh, people in a particular clinic that you're connected with 
let us say, in the heart of Zimbabwe, they will never have needed you more than at this moment. Uh, new ways to communicate are great, but there's so much of it. I agree. How do we filter and find what's good, both Christian literature and medical, too much at times? Yes, that's right. It's all a bit of a, you know, some people say, I'm getting zoomed out. <laughs> that's true. We, we'll find our way to, to work through this. this and, uh, you know, I think the most important thing, let me say this. I'd say if you find life is really stressful, do, do me a favor, take your phone, put it in a bucket of water. <laughs> well, not quite, but you know, turn it off and make an agreement, a covenant with all the people you live with in the same house that you'll do the same. Because otherwise the news just leaks. You know, they start phoning a friend or phoning you or phoning your wife or whatever. Just turn it off. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't need this stream of consciousness all the time. It's, it's actually bad for your, you know, too, watching too much CNN and BBC news can make you physically sick. Okay, it's one of the quickest ways to work yourself up to an anxiety state. By the way, it isn't, the, uh, it's a version of the truth. But uh, if you watch TV news, I can tell you, it's only a version. And actually without video, it, it doesn't make the story. So lots of good news stories don't get on the news. Let's just take a deep breath and just remember who we are. Um, what are the best ways in the UK we can help? Yes, I've got that one. Tipping point between deaths uh, in developing countries and deaths from collateral damage. I think I've done that one. Uh, let's have a look at this. I had a plea from a family in rural Zimbabwe who without food because lockdown had stopped income generation. Are our priorities dis misplaced? I'll tell you this. We can snipe about this and complain about that. If you happen to live in a country with running water and electricity, thank God every moment of every day, my friends, that you don't live in one of those villages where I say you're 80 kilometers from the nearest clinic and all they've got is drugs for anti epilepsy or so on. Um, yes, we do need to keep things in proportion here. We need to thank God for what we have, be grateful for what we have, and continue to, to work with organizations in the longer term after COVID to fight uh, social injustice and uh, in increased development in the poorest parts of the world, especially in Africa, uh, because it's such a, such in such need at the moment. Um, is the fear disproportionate to the damage of COVID-19, which is fairly low death rate? So is the response doing more damage than the virus itself? These are all related to the same things. My friends, remember, this is wartime. I'll tell you this, if you just had a, 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 a whole barrage of missiles coming over onto Weymouth, and there's, and there's shrapnel flying around right now, and the hospitals are overwhelmed, you don't go out. The government says, you've got an air raid siren, and listen to the air raid siren, stay inside, for goodness sake, until uh, something, uh, uh, there's, there's less, less shrapnel, less missiles flying over. Um, and, and we've worked out how to actually walk around outside. We worked out how to work more safely. We worked out how to, to, to cope within the NHS. Let the NHS catch up. These are common sense things. Listen, this, the, the lockdown you're in at the moment is not going to last forever. It can't because, of course, it would mean the virus wins. So you're right, but just not quite yet, okay? Do you think the church door should, should have stayed open for, for prayer, meditation, and counselling as a service of witness? I wish I could say yes. We've got a small cafe outside our house. And um, trouble is, every time they open for even a nanosecond, they're supposed to be just for takeaways. We've got 20 people sitting outside. This is irresistible force that social beings have to congregate. And I just, I, I, I'm not sure I could trust 30 people to go inside the church building. <laughs> I, I would trust our vicar to go inside his church building and pray. And I think that would be a fantastic thing to do, even though he, he feels that he's been, well, he's been told by the bishop not to. But, you know, let's just be careful. 
uh, uh, churches will be open again and there'll be partial opening will, will be partially social distanced or you know, large churches will be spreading people across the whole church and sitting in every other row or whatever it is let's just take a deep breath let the nhs catch up and protect the most vulnerable how can we protect the mental health of those on the front in a war they didn't realize they'd signed up to be on the front line in world war three well actually no one no one knew in the first second world war either you you weren't signed up you were conscripted okay let's be clear about that in a time of war you don't get to choose what job you do you get allocated by the government why to, to keep the fight against the enemy on uh, going in the best way so let's be clear we are at war we're doing jobs that we don't necessarily choose to do, some, some we, things that we didn't sign up for. But the most important thing is this, as in wartime, we need to understand that one of the greatest challenges is the mental, you know, the well-being, the psychological well-being of those who are right in the front line. And also those who are mentally vulnerable, they have mental health issues anyway, which they sort of manage somehow, but in lockdown, they can't manage and they are not coping and having all kinds of, of significant mental health issues, which will probably get better after isolation is over. So we need to really watch out and be, um, I guess, extra thoughtful and sensitive to people who we think are behaving really strangely. This is a strange time. And as in war, when this is all over, this isn't the time for it, but when this is all over, there will be a generation of people just like soldiers who will need long-term, uh, counseling for post-traumatic stress disorder there's no doubt about that and we should be thinking about that now um okay so do you think the pandemic could be a big level younger developing countries could be released quicker oh well that's certainly true you know factories are going to be back at work in a country like the philippines maybe whew, could be six months to eight months earlier than uh, someone like germany um, what do you think about the impact of current restrictions and focus on other areas of healthcare? I think it's very damaging um, at the moment, has been, but it will, license, it will loosen up. You know, we've got healthcare workers, we've just heard from someone saying, look, we've got spare capacity at the moment. We need to be uh, communicating that and say, look, you know, we've got a cancer care unit, which is completely empty. We've got hospice beds completely empty. We've got diagnostic x-ray departments that have hardly got anybody in them in this particular hospital because actually we cleared out a whole load of elective surgery and things like that. We need to really work carefully to, to get things back moving more normally. And we will, we will. But listen, we're only eight weeks into this declaration of war, really. Um, do you envisage the new normal be long-term? Do you think the world can go back to living as it was before? You know what? I think that's an interesting question. What I'd say is this, and uh, th this is a big trends discussion, and it's what I'm saying to big companies. We're seeing very few new trends as a result of COVID-19 so far. What we are seeing is acceleration of existing ones. So, um, you know, for instance, people um, eating less meat, it's suddenly increased a lot because people are being more thoughtful about what they cook at home. I don't think that will go back because it's, it's part of a longer term trend. It's been very well described. It just did that. Um, another one is shopping malls. You know, there's a shopping mall here in Weymouth. Um, Maybe it'll stay open, but it's probably going to close two years earlier than it might have done otherwise. It was going to close, and it might have been going to close anyway because of the migration from online, from retail physical to online. That migration has happened more quickly. So yes, there are lots of changes which have been accelerated, and the same in healthcare. For instance, virtual medicine, fantastic. But listen, I've been lecturing about virtual medicine um, for 25 years now. Um, it's about time we did it, you know, and we won't go back. 
is it new? No, it's not new. We've had virtual, virtual diagnostic tools and video for consultations for, for 20 years now. It's just we haven't bothered to use the technology that's on most people's phones. Jolly good we are now too. What are the dangers of seeing this pandemic through a metaphor of war? Well, I don't see any danger at all. After all, we don't, we're not called by the Lord Jesus Christ to fall in love with a virus. We're not called to be kind to viruses. It might be difficult if it was a cow or something, but I mean, a virus isn't even a living thing. It's just a robot. So I think we can declare war with as much aggressive language as we like against a virus. What we mustn't do is allow that negative emotion towards a virus to overflow in any way whatsoever to stigmatize those who are affected. Um, what opportunities does the pandemic bring for positive change in how the NHS provides care as a whole? How are we doing for time? Seven minutes, seven questions. Okay. Um, uh, what opportunities does the pandemic bring for positive change in how the NHS provides care as a whole? Well, I think the biggest positive change will be digitalization, virtualization. I can't tell you how I hate going to see the doctor as a doctor myself. I can't think more of a waste of time. I know what's wrong with me. I just need a prescription. And I'm so pleased to tell you that uh, the last time I saw a doctor was a, a long time ago because we usually do it over the phone. Video is great. And I think that uh, I think if the, if the biggest single thing that comes out of this is that let's say 50% of, of GP calls become video calls, hallelujah. Because video tells you a lot more. It's the things you see behind you. And, you know, you see the, you know, you know the person's house is usually fairly tidy. You can see all the chaos. You hear the children, you can see the children running around half naked, uh, a two year old falling over uh, who looks dirty. Video is very important. And it can tell you things that you would not see even if a person comes to your, to your surgery. So very good. And outpatient appointments, what a complete waste of space. Most of the time, go and see a consultant to simply get a piece of paper result. You say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It turned out to be perfectly normal, perfectly normal. Go and enjoy your life. I say, thanks very much. <laughs> Why have I wasted all my time and five pounds to park in the car park? For goodness sake, we could do better than this. So but let's not go back to that. Let's, let's make it work. Um, okay, how will the threat of viruses interact with the threat to global health of climate change? This pandemic is helping us to understand that all is not well with an overcrowded world. You see, it, it, these, are, these are problems of overpopulation, basically. I say lots of people. If you have 9 billion people, 15 billion people, you've got 15 billion chances of a mutation every time there's a virus pandemic and evolving into something much more aggressive. So whether we're talking about resources being used up or whether we're talking about um, very densely packed human communities uh, that are vulnerable to, to viruses, it's all part of a big conversation, which is, come on folks, us human beings can do better than this. And we deserve our future generations command us to do better than this. How would you speak with fellow Christians who believe conspiracy theories surrounding the virus? Oh my word. When HIV started, even, um, even papers like the Sunday Times were, were, were printing regularly front page stories that the HIV, HIV didn't cause AIDS. I had to go and see the editor, Andrew Neil, who's still a famous person on the BBC and ITV, I think, um, Andrew Neil personally and do battle with him in, the, in his office and say, your, your headlines are killing people. You're saying that HIV does not cause AIDS. I mean, what planet are you on? So conspiracy theories can be adopted by all kinds of people who are surprisingly intelligent. It's just astonishing what people will believe. Um, and and you, know, you can see I've torn up most of my hair already from my head trying to cope with people with conspiracy theories. Very difficult. You've got any tips? You can <laughs> contact me on my website and tell me. I don't know what they are. I just try and do my bit. We should all do our bit. 
by pumping out as much truth as we possibly can based on science uh, with proper references on your tweets and blogs and things like that. A conspiracy theory only survives because of the silence of those around us. Evil men and women only ascend to great power because good people stay silent. So fake stuff only survives because people who know the truth don't challenge it. So that's the challenge, we get on with it. Um, life, um, what's one lesson we could take from this pandemic as Christian practitioners to thrust us towards capacity building to promote global health? Well, I agree. I mean, I think this, this, is, this will highlight big challenges. It's also highlighting big challenges in nations like America who still don't have one coordinated system to manage in, an, in, in wartime emergency, to manage healthcare. It's really important. Life has slowed down during lockdown. Well, some would say it speeded up a number of Zoom calls and tweets and WhatsApps. Oh, I mean, <laughs> educating grandchildren on, on the, uh, doing their school for them at a distance. I'm glad your life has slowed down during lockdown. I'm very pleased about that. And many people, uh, oh, the question has just disappeared. I can't read the rest of it now. <laughs> I think what you're saying is um, something about the pace of life generally. Um, Yes, I think there's going to be more resistance to commuting and things like that when people go back because they've learned how to do things better. Um, how would you advise we talk to our children about the situation? What are the main top lessons we need them to learn? Well, I think it depends on the, on the age of the child. Um, I think what's very, very important, and we, we need to be teaching our children this anyway, is that actually, out of kindness uh, to others, we, you know, we always crop our, uh, we don't <laughs> make sure we don't, spray the whole world with with uh, with coughs and sneezes that's a number one and that would be a very good thing for any child to learn for the rest of their lives um i, I can't really get in that question much more than that because i think it's difficult you know your children we need to be careful that we communicate hope and and not absolute pathological fear uh, we we bumped into a friend of ours walking uh, walking outside just now and she said that one of her twins who's i think nine years old 11 years old had not been out of the house for a month because he's afraid of dying so, okay, so what do we need to communicate as parents? That, that they understand, yes, there are missiles flying around, there are air raid shelters, but you don't hide an air raid shelter when the air raid is over. Actually, we need to live and work how we uh, uh, operate despite this. And with a smile on our faces, militantly committed to pursuing normality uh, for the sake of our future world. How can we influence our leaders to open up lockdown in a morally or spiritually healthy way. I'm not quite sure what that means, but all I can tell you is this, that Boris Johnson being knocked down and within a hair's whisker of losing his life because he was in the category where you would expect half of those people to die and having faced his own mortality and still three weeks later being at home from hospital is unable to attend, uh, to really fully participate in government. Uh, this has, will, will produce, I promise you, a lifelong shock to his system, a massive appreciation that will never leave him of the importance of national health care, um, and I think will instill um, a different tone of voice in everything that happens regarding loosening things up. He may be much more cautious as a result, I have to say. Um, I've got one more minute left. Have you written any books? Yes, I've written 17 <laughs> that you can recommend with direct applications of scripture to the future. I mean, what order should we prioritize that reading them? Oh dear. Okay, um, I'm, I'm not going to answer that in detail. I've written 17. Some of them are 
books for the ghetto, for the Christian community. Some of them are what they were called, crossover books. They were sold in Smiths and they're bought by business schools. Others are very straightforward, mainstream trend books. Have a look at my website, globalchange.com. You don't need to buy them. I mean, most of the books I've ever written are free. They're there. The whole text is there. You can download them. And there's a whole chapter of one of my books, um, which you can download for free. The whole of the whole, the truth of almost the, the future of almost everything is my latest book. It describes COVID. Actually, it predicted, uh, predicted uh, you'll see a, a life in, in the future and, and it describes COVID type pandemics. Um, and it's free. You can actually download it for free as an audio book, um, completely free. All you've got to do is sign up um, on, on Audible, which is Amazon, click on it, um, uh, download the book and then cancel the subscription. <laughs> you get the whole book for free. You get two books for the first month for nothing. You don't have to pay anything. So have it, enjoy it. Um, it's every, it's, it contains everything I, I think uh, I've, I understand about the world we're living in at the moment. Um, is it biblical full of Bible verses? No. Uh, but is it full of, of, of truth based on a biblical understanding of our world? Absolutely, I hope so. I hope so. Anyway, that's for you to judge, not me. I would like to pray before we finish. Felicia, I'm handing back to you at this point. I'm over time, I think, by at least 60 seconds. That, that would be great. Thank you, Patrick. Please do. Okay. And just to say uh, that uh, um, on globalchange.com is my mobile phone number. LinkedIn, FaceTime, Twitter. Let's continue whatever conversations you like. All I'd say is please be kind to me. 15 million people have it because they use the site. So if I haven't replied immediately, count to 10, wait three days and send again. <laughs> okay, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that you are in control of this world, that you are the, you are the, the creator God, that you, uh, you, th th you are full of might and majesty, dominion and glory. The whole universe is yours. The COVID is nothing to you. And this is just a blip in a history of humanity, a humanity that you love and that you sent Jesus Christ to save. And we thank you that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit, that whether we feel like it or not, we are the aroma of Christ. We are his hands and we are his feet. And we pray that you would make us uh, uh, more able to... Uh, to carry that mandate, to be your salt, to be your light, to be your bearers of love, your expressors of truth, uh, your, your, your hands of compassion. Father, we pray that we will be a prophetic people as a generation of people medically trained or medically inclined, wanting to express and show your love, touch this world and transform it for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, thank you so much to Patrick for that passionate, insightful and truth-filled injection, if you like, a real word in season. Let's be that prophetic people. CMF is releasing conference highlights across our social media channels. You can check out our morning Bible talks, walking through the book of Habakkuk, looking at the question, How long, O Lord? Finding hope in Christ when the storm clouds gather by John T. Alcock, also on this podcast feed. Let me tell you, it is not to be missed. Do check out our voices from the front line and why don't you subscribe and leave us a review to share this content further. What a time to be a healthcare professional. Let's live and speak for Jesus together. Bye for now.